the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. It is a Friday edition. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we'll uh, have a musical guest, as we typically do, as a way to start the weekend off early. But tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of uh, the... September 11th attack on the uh, World Trade Center and uh, and the Pentagon and my next guest has a book that uh, well let's see how do, how do I want to put this um, draws a line between the reaction to September 11th and where we're at today. It's called Subtle Tools, the Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. She is uh, Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law, an International Studies Fellow at New America, and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And her name is uh, Karen Greenberg. She joins me by phone. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having me. Um, let's let's talk about this uh, book a little bit. Um, the I'm trying to find the phrase. I, I saw a phrase um, 
that basically sounds like your uh, the book Subtle Tools is connecting the dots between uh, uh, September 11th and and really the January 6th uh, attack on the on the Capitol. Um, what are some of the dots that Subtle Tools connects? Yeah, so um, it's funny, it's interesting. They do converge on uh, the Capitol riots, which is interesting because, you know, I didn't write the book with the intention of ending it with the Capitol riots, right? It just sort of <laughs> happened as I was ending the, writing the book, which is very bizarre. So, you, you, Karen, uh, you had to be the only person in America that saw those events unfolding and thought to themselves, now I have an ending for my book. Correct. I hope <laughs> I was the only person. Goodness, I was like, this can't really be happening. It was just so. Um, so, you know, the, the Capitol riots happened in, I mean, we're going to get an investigation of them to know more of the details, and I will be very interested to see what those are. But many of the things that were set in motion after 9-11, in, to my mind, led to erosions of norms uh, that ended up in allowing the uh, Capitol riots to happen. I think the most obvious one was that, did you notice that nobody responded? <laughs> nobody came to the Capitol. No troops. No National, yeah. no national Guard. No DHS troops. Uh, nothing, no law enforcement, no one arrived for most of the day, correct? Well, for Com several hours, to be sure. For, for, till, till, the, till the late in the afternoon. Um, who, uh, so contrast that, just to give you an example of how this plays out, contrast that to, uh, um, to, get to June 1st, 2020, when President Trump, as you probably recall, took a walk through Lafayette Square Park to hold up the Bible in front of the church. It, in walking through a mass of um, protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters, uh, do you remember that event? What was notable about that event was there were 12 plus different law enforcement um, uh, offices represented as countering the protesters. Where were they? On January 6th. Yeah, I do well, remember that event. That's the one where uh, uh, then-President Trump famously uh, held a Bible up in front of a church. Upside down. I, I was yes. going to say that, <laughs> but I... But yes. Um, but, but my point about this is that one of the things that happens after 9-11 is a disruption of um, bureaucratic change of, chain of command authorities within the bureaucracy and an ability to, in, to interfere with bureaucratic integrity. So why did nobody show up? Obviously, the chain of command was disbanded. Obviously, there was some failure of communication between agencies. All of this had been happening one way or another since 9-11 in an increasing way. We saw it with Hurricane Katrina, and often it fell on the Department of Homeland Security, which is a very inchoate, uh, confused amalgamation of different offices and departments with different agendas, different uh, lines of command, different legal authorities, and more. And so what I argue is that, that breaking that uh, bureaucratic integrity early on after 9-11 and, and doing so in a way that was institutionalized within the Department of Homeland Security created a, a, a possibility 
of um, interrupting normal processes like responding to a Capitol riot with uh, law enforcement um, uh, after 9-11. And so that just would give you one. I think also I spent a lot of time talking about secrecy in its most fulsome context, secrecy of um, individuals within government. It's one thing to have classified information, and it's another thing to hold secrets that will do the country harm. The most egregious example is, of course, the decision to go war in Iraq based on uh, the, the wrongful information about WMDs in Iraq. Um, the secrecy that surrounded the uh, uh, Trump administration and the administrations before that, but the Trump administration, when it came to not taking notes in meetings, leaving people of authority who uh, out of meetings, and therefore being able to create a circle of secrecy that could be powerful enough to let something like uh, the Capitol uh, riots attack is another example. Karen, I want to go back to... Um 20 years ago, the wake of September 11th or 9-11, as, as we refer to it, um, and, and talk about the creation of Homeland Security and then, and then kind of bring it to current day. But first, I, I meant to ask you this right off the bat, and I didn't. What is the Council on Foreign Relations? <laughs> the Council on Foreign Relations is a... Foreign Policy Institute that is largely uh, an amalgam of people who have sometimes served in government, um, uh, sometimes uh, been experts on governmental policies, sometimes researchers. Um, it's headed by Richard Haas, who was formerly at the State Department, and um, it brings together, you know, experts and officials to talk about, you know, high-profile issues. Okay, I, I was just curious because I hadn't seen that exact phrase. I've I've usually thought of it in terms of legislative committees and so on. No, no. Um, and and this is more of a think tank. Yeah, and it's based. It's no, it's more of a. It's it, it's yeah. It might call itself a think tank. I would call it a a think tank outside. It's much like Washington think tanks, but it's outside of Washington. It's in New York City, and therefore it's a place in New York with a national reach that um, focuses on issues primarily of foreign policy. Okay, now getting back to uh, Homeland Security and the creation of Homeland Security, there was a lot of uh, criticism, and you mentioned this about um, poor communications on January 6th, but back 20 years ago in the wake of 9-11, uh, there was a lot of criticism about agencies, different agencies that may have had bits and pieces of information that had they coordinated better might have helped, helped prevent the attacks. But in, in Homeland Security, um, and then who was it, uh, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Ridge uh, that was appointed to head that up initially by George W. Bush, um, was saying that the idea was to have these agencies interact so that they could information share and everybody would have all the information. And it all sounded like, you know, like a good thing. Is that what happened? Yeah, it, it, um, no. 
Um, so, so, <laughs> That's so, the short answer. Yeah. So, um, so here's, here's uh, it was a prescription for, for trouble. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right that one of the takeaways, immediate takeaways from 9-11 was why wasn't there better communication? Um, now, we know that it wasn't really institutional um, uh, uh, problems. It was uh, institutional agendas, which was the CIA and the FBI did not um, share information about the terrorists, the hijackers that were in the country. But that wasn't done because of any institutional reasons. That was done because the CIA chose not to share the uh, information with the FBI. Nonetheless, the idea that there had to be more communication led to numerous changes in government. Some of them were very important. One was the creation of the um, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which was sort of enable different um, pieces of the communication of the intelligence network to talk to one another and, and a responsible office on top of that. Um, another one was the creation of individual agencies within departments, for example, um, the National Security Division within the um, Department of Justice, which could um, could have um, you know meetings that included intelligence matters and intelligence authorities. And so there was more built-in uh, communication throughout the government. Department of Homeland Security was created ostensibly for the purpose of creating a more vibrant, yes, communicative um, organization for uh, protecting national security against terrorism. It was a counter-terrorism measure. From the beginning, it was a problem. The lead counterterrorism agency in the country for domestic matters is the FBI. The FBI did not go to the Department of Homeland Security. The FBI stayed at the Department of Justice. Instead, it was amalgam of different offices from Treasury, Transportation, Health and Human Services, Agriculture, um, and, and more. And so it gave you a sense that they were just throwing offices in there, and there were a lot of debate about what went in and what didn't go in, throwing offices in there for the purpose of, of um, ostensibly protecting the country from further jihadist terrorist attacks. Almost immediately, it became a different kind of organization. It became an organization that turned its focus on drug smuggling um, on the southern border. Um, I, uh, the INS was... Um, was ended, and instead new organization agencies, ICE and CBP, were put, um, CBP were put inside of um, the Department of Homeland Security. And so it was such a mess at the beginning without lines of command being clear, without the mission of the department, how it was going to bring together all these different agendas. Um, and um, we saw this in Hurricane Katrina. When, Karen, um, I, I hate to yeah. interrupt, but I have to take a short break here. Can you stick oh, sorry, around? For, no, no. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk of some course. more? Okay, because we're just scratching the surface, and, and that may be all we get to in the time we have today. But, <laughs> okay. um, but uh, I do need to take this break and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. For the listeners, if you're uh, streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, and we'll be back with more right after this. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. We continue now with our conversation. Uh, Actually, we're sort of commemorating the 20th anniversary of September 11th with an author of a new book uh, called Subtle Tools. And uh, Karen Greenberg joins me by phone. Karen, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Of course. No, no, it's fine. Um, Just before the break, we were talking a little bit about the creation of uh, Homeland Security immediately following the attacks of uh, 9-11-2001. And uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious because you draw a line in your book from then to current times and talk about the erosion of, of uh, uh, communication and, and uh, organizational integrity and privacy and a number of other things that are all folded into this. But would you, what would you consider um, about the, the uh Patriot Act and its role. Is that ground zero, sort of, for this timeline that is outlined in your book? Ground zero, it's close to ground zero, but ground zero is the authorization for military force that sent uh, U.S. troops into Afghanistan to get al-Qaeda bin Laden um, and, you know, to counter immediately the attacks of uh, 9-11. And that act is so imprecise in its language, doesn't name an enemy, has no geographical limits, doesn't have a time frame, doesn't mention the end of hostilities, in contradistinction to every other authorization for force, including declarations of war in U.S. history. And, so um, and we're just, that's, the, that's the first moment. And we're just on the heels um, after this 20 years of... Uh, uh, the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, and a lot of people are scratching their heads and saying, why were we there? Is is that a direct result of the lack of clarity in the in the declaration of uh, military 100%. action? 100%. By, by the, by within the first month, the United States had done what it intended to do, um, or at least what Rumsfeld intended to do, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, He pivoted, made the decision to pivot to Iraq, but in fact, much of the um, uh, infrastructure and the havens of al-Qaeda had been destroyed uh, within those first few months of uh, the U.S. invasion. Um, And uh, we could have, you know, spent a a little more time there to to route things out. We, uh, the United States did not, um, did not conduct um, the full attack on Tora Bora, which is how Osama bin Laden escaped to Pakistan from Afghanistan. But um, then the mission changed to nation building. That was nowhere, obviously, in the minds of um, the Congress when it passed the AUMF. And if it had been, it should have been named as one of the goals of uh, of the uh, incursion. And we still live under this authorization for the use of military force, which has been used to expand to countries all over the world with the use of uh, U.S. force. You talk about um, this this erosion over the last 20 years, um, and and you kind of hint that that uh, it sort of peaked under the presidency of Donald Trump, and and you talk about some of the efforts that uh, now um, President Biden is is trying to set right. Um, and I think it was Barack Obama, um, maybe 
sometime during the Trump presidency, I saw him uh, on television speaking uh, somewhere, and, and he said uh, that Donald Trump did not cause the problem. He was a symptom of the problem. Do you agree with that assessment? Was um, Donald Trump taking advantage of a trend that was already well entrenched? Well, in terms of what my book talks about, definitely. Um, the, the tools, these things I call the subtle tools, he knew just how to use them in a way that would take them from tools to weapons. Um, for example, just uh, secrecy. The use of secrecy, which expanded exponentially in uh, the war on terror to cover up many things as well as to keep secret some important classified issues, um, was, was kept in place under Obama for all intents and purposes, um, not rolled back on in any way that, that, that Donald Trump couldn't still use it. And what he did was to take secrecy to new levels by, for example, forbidding notes being taken at meetings um, so that there would be no record. So if you don't have a record, then secrecy is at a whole new level. The same thing at the border with separating families, uh, with separating children from their parents. There were no records kept for the most part of those separations. So that's one of the reasons it's so hard to reunite them, but it was just a continuation of secrecy taken to a new level, which was, we don't even have to write this down. The same thing with refusing to let um, White House officials uh, testify before Congress. Um, and there are many other examples of this where he just wouldn't let the record be created, um, which is a problem when you want to write the history of this or do an investigation of it in later days. You, this is, um, your book really kind of identifies um, imprecise language and um, bureaucratic porousness, secrecy, as you just mentioned, um, and bypassing norms. Um, and then you talk about these things being used in combination. Can you kind of describe some examples so we know what kinds of things were happening. Um, you know, you mentioned imprecise language and you talked about secrecy, but what about bureaucratic porousness? What does that mean exactly? That's a good question. Um, it's so hard when you're trying to explain vague things and then you say, what does it mean exactly? But it does mean something exactly, which is that um, bureaucratic porousness is my term for um, getting rid of uh, or, you know, um, confounding the roles of certain agencies. For example, the most obvious is that after 9-11, when DHS was created, the, uh, the distinction between the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, there were many times at which it was virtually non-existent, most clearly when it came to border policies. Um, where DHS was controlled very much by, for example, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who had an, had, had a, uh, um, a long-term interest uh, in anti-immigration um, policies. Um, and so that would be one example. The, ki the kind of um, at-the-hip attachment that went on between the White House and the Department of Justice during um, the Bush administration and again, during the Trump administration is another example of it. The same thing within agencies. 
you know, when we talk about Hurricane Katrina, why was there not an effective response to Hurricane Katrina? It was DHS that, that showed up. It was different that they showed up on the outskirts of it, but FEMA didn't know who it was taking its orders from. The Coast Guard didn't know who it was taking its orders from. The people on the ground um, in, in government it did not know who, who was in charge, and as a result, it was a complete mess due to an inability of offices to know what their mission was within DHS as opposed to if they were just freestanding agencies or understood their mission the way they'd been attached to the agencies that they came from. So those would be just, you know, some beginning examples. Now, how is that, how is that you know, intensified? Um, give you an example. Um, what happened when Donald Trump wanted to counter the Black Lives Matter protests in Portland? Who did he turn to? Did he turn to the National Guard? Did he turn to the local authorities in, in Portland or the state authorities and say, how can I help you? No. He took DHH agents, agents from the border, dressed them up in camouflage so they looked like military, took off their insignia so that no one knew who they were, and sent them to Portland to combat armed, to combat um, the, the protesters. This is an example, bureaucratic porousness, which is that what's the mission? What are the limits on the mission? And the point is that if it's not clear, if it's not articulated, and, and it's allowed to sort of fester in a sort of confused state, it can be used for whatever the president wants it for. You indicate that, that Barack Obama did little to um, correct some of the things that were moving in the wrong direction or some of the... Uh, Oh, some of this, uh, what's the phrase, bureaucratic porousness and secrecy and, and, you know, some of these kinds of things that he had an opportunity maybe to um, walk some of those things back after George W. Bush's presidency. And, and you kind of say he dropped the ball on it or, or took advantage of it That's himself. That's right. I... I he- you say opportunity. I think he had the intention of rolling back a lot of it. I think he recognized it, as in the quote you presented before. Um, he understood just what degradation of constitutional principles um, had, had taken effect under uh, the Bush era, the eight years of the Bush era, particularly after 9-11. And he did attempt to walk some of it back. For example, he sent out a presidential memorandum as soon as he got in office saying that um, he was going to commit his administration to transparency as opposed to secrecy, to making things more available. And yet, under President Obama, um, there were twice as many Freedom of Information Act requests denied as under President Bush. And while the commitment was there and the intention was there, the actual willingness to do it wasn't there. The same thing with, with um, messy language. Um, for all of the lack of clarity that um, he might have wanted to address when it came to his own policies, so for example, the use of drones for lethal killings in countries around the world, he redefined the notion of imminence to mean that which could someday happen uh, rather than that which was about to happen. Uh, something that the Trump administration then used when they killed top Iranian general uh, um, uh, Qasem Soleimani. And I guess what it comes down to when you think about Obama is that his, his approach was, look, I'm not going to violate these things. 
I'm, I was a constitutional law professor. I know what the rules are. I'm not looking to, to, to break them. Um, and, and that trust me government attitude meant that these tools lay there, whether he used them or not, um, lay there on the table for President Trump, and they're still there. Well, and, and uh, Joe Biden, of course, was vice president at the time and, and a uh, key part of the Obama administration. Um, and yet in the, in the book, you talk about his intentions since becoming president of, of rolling some of these things back. Um, are you at all concerned that, that um, he may have good intentions uh, the way Obama did and, and, and not really change much? Just carry on as well, usual? Well, he certainly has changed a lot by pulling out of Afghanistan. I think that is a major, uh, long overdue uh, move, um, and so I, I'm, that makes me, you know, less worried. I think he uses the words "clear." We need clear rules. We need clear definitions. We need clear aims. He has said this numerous times, not just about Afghanistan. I think the idea of of realizing the dangers of imprecise, fuzzy, cloudy authorities um, is one that he does in his in his bones, um, understand. So, you know, I'm, I'm willing to um, give him the benefit of the doubt going forward. Let me tell you, this isn't going to be easy. Then in order for this to happen, look, for it to really happen, it's not just about undoing what happened in the past that went wrong, like pulling out of Afghanistan or closing Guantanamo. It's that, and this is the argument of my book, it's that the way it was done is what's of great concern. And as long as those tools aren't outlawed, regulated, named, and people held accountable for them, um, the country is still vulnerable to the kinds of things that have happened over the past 20 years in their name. Do you think the release of uh, documents regarding investigations of September 11th uh, and the declassification of some of those will reveal... Uh, uh, perhaps a, a smoking gun that, that reformers could hang their hats on? I'm not sure that that, it, it could happen maybe in terms of what, are, what, what can happen when secrecy can be willfully claimed without any kind of oversight. I think, um, I think that could happen, but I think it's such a much bigger picture than just that, that the, the transformations have to come within the structures of governance themselves. You can't have a department with inside the Department of Justice that is the go-to place for the president to say, change the law, and then it is automatically changed. You can't have that. That's what happened in the war on terror when it came to, yes, seek what we were allowed to keep secret. That's what happened when it came to, could we make torture legal? That's what happened in a number, could, could surveillance be done in a warrantless um, mass way? All of these things um, happened because of these tools that were being used. And until, you know, it, it, it's much deeper than just documents. It's how it was allowed to be kept secret, how it was allowed to be authorized, both of these things. And then, you know, the, the ultimate goal of all of this and the thing that this country has, has run away from is accountability. What if there is a smoking gun? Will there be accountability? What would that look like? Can we have a... Truth and um, you know, truth commission report. Like, what what will it take? Truth and Re reconciliation commission. What would it take to say if it's not just about 
holding people accountable, but telling the story in an accurate way so that we can really move on. How has the the special court uh, impacted these uh, abuses? Which special court? Uh, the one the, that was that was set up to approve um, domestic surveillance surveil- and that sort of thing. You know what's happened with the FISA court, which was set that's, up. That's the one. I, I couldn't remember right. the phrase. It's Thank the, you, Karen. I thought that's what you meant. I wasn't sure if it was that or the military commission. The 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 FISA um, the uh, foreign intelligence surveillance court was set up to for good reason to make sure that requests from the F- FBI for certain kinds of surveillance of those who were suspected of being agents of a foreign power or spies that they could uh, investigate them for intelligence purposes, to collect information on, you know, intelligence. And and the thing about the FISA court, it, 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 there's many parts of this that we can discuss, is that its role fundamentally changed over the course of the 9-11 years in several ways, partially because of, of um, legislation, partly because of some litigation. And the upshot is that the FISA court is in some ways more robust in that there has to be some kind of defender within the court, even though this is all classified and no one knows what's going on, to defend the person or category of persons that might be targeted. Um, It's changed also in that there's been a slide from individuals targeted to groups targeted. Um, And um, it's it's been, and, and, and much of what, we think about as FISA court materials have actually been moved ultimately to other to, to private sectors. But for the FISA court itself, it stayed. Nobody's attacked it. It's often called a secret court. Um, it's meant as a classified court, and and um, you know I, I think it's I think it's well going to stay as it is for a long time to come. The uh, title of the book is Subtle Tools, the Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump by uh, Karen Greenberg, my guest this hour. Karen, um, when you talk about the dismantling of uh, American democracy uh, and and whether it's uh, Joe Biden trying to, to sort of reassemble or, or make bring back some of the norms, um, is the political will there to make things right again? And if not, what's what's preventing it from um, the, the political will from kicking in and, and making these things right again? Well, what other challenges, all, I guess? The real challenge in my case, so is there a political will to push back against the excessive level of secrecy? Probably. But I would say the political will is a combination of um, what if we want these tools someday, right? It's one thing when your opponent abuses them, but what if we ever want them, right? Um, and, And that's why, you know, it's hard to give up power. Um, name me the president who's been willing to give up powers since uh, George Washington. So that's part of it. But I think another part of it, and this is why I wanted to write the book, is just plain recognition of um, what these tools are and how pernicious they can be and how they can transform over time and how once you allow for unspecified powers and uses of the levers of power, you're in trouble as a country. There's a reason 
that the founding fathers talked about enumerated powers. There's a reason that the founding fathers talked about precision repeatedly about making laws that were precise, that targeted what they were about. There's a reason that Joe Biden keeps saying we need to have more clear policies. This is something that we don't acknowledge as a country. And so first there has to be an acknowledgement of what this vulnerability is. I think the second thing is that at the base of all of that, this there's a sense of, uh-oh, if we do this, if we look into this, then people are going to look guilty, and we don't want to turn on people from the past. We don't want to unearth the past. Obama, let's look forward, not backwards. There's no reason to get into this and hold people accountable uh, for these um, egregious things like torture. Um, the fact is that we have to redefine what accountability can be. If, if, if the country doesn't have the, the, the stomach to think about the mass amount of um, justice that would have to be administered to those who brought about these violations of norms and policies, then fine. Let's just tell the story and let's tell it in an authoritative way and, and point out what was wrong. So, so I don't know. That's my answer. Well, Karen, um, as I said earlier, we're, we're just scratching the surface of all this. And I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, uh, past, present, and future. Karen, do you have a website? Yeah, I mean, I have a, I'm the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law, and so it's Center on, Center on National Security um, dot something, dot org, probably. And, um, or EDU, and they maybe. Can no, I think it's not org. And then they, I should know this. And then they, um, and and they can just go on there, and they and they will go to my page, and it'll have every single thing they need. Um, and what's to look at. and what's next for you? It's a really good question. Um, I see the post nine eleven era as having come to an end, um, and I'm sort of still living inside this book which just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'm, I, too, am curious to see what new challenge <laughs> I'll want to take on. <laughs> well, Karen, thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. It's, uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much, Tom. All Have right. A good ta day. Take care. Bye. That was Karen Greenberg. As she just mentioned, she is the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law. Uh, she is uh, an International Studies Fellow at New America and a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She has several books, but her new book, that, as she said, just came out a couple weeks ago, is uh, called Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. And it seemed uh, fitting with tomorrow being the 20th uh, anniversary of the uh, attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and, uh, and that fourth plane that went down in Pennsylvania that, uh, as uh, John Reston pointed out this morning, seems fairly uh, certain was headed for the U.S. Capitol building. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise. We have a musical guest coming up at the top of the hour. Matt Wilson will join us by phone. We'll hear some of his music and talk about his book, Hooks. 
So, don't touch Hello it there, now. Citizens. We'll be right back. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Oh, beautiful, for spacious skies, for amber ways of gray, for purple mountains, majesty, Now here we are in America, ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on? Our children growing hungry, teens are turning to crime, and politicians know it's true, but they ain't got no time. Now here we are in America, ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on? 
loves is stay away from church. I avoid old folks, and should I sneeze, I do it in my elbow.
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 